Welcome to what? Love. If. I thought it'd be cool to wait to do it for, with the music, but no, it was awkward. It was a good idea. It was a good idea. You know, that's that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Right. No, actually, it's completely useless. Ideas are cheap. <laughs> it's all in the execution. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, Matt Stanley, how are you? Um, I continue to exist in some kind of continuity with the previous entities tagged by that name. Um, <laughs> so I think that's probably fine. Um, I Wait, think you exist the, with their other... En- uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I follow. In, in continuity with, you know, at, at, at points in the past... There have been entities known as Matthew Stanley, um, and I share many characteristics with those entities in the past. Um, so I'm fine. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. How far apart is each entity? Um, well, that's a, a deep question on the metaphysics of time. Right. Um, so the, the Planck time, which I have that <laughs> minus 67 right. seconds or something like that. Yeah. Interesting concept to think that you are leaving behind Mm-hmm. Or you are coming into being, I guess. Well, who who knows? We don't know. Well, this is, I should say, this is actually the, a good way to get an argument started between a Buddhist and a Hindu, if you happen to have two in the room. Um, right. Yeah, so, you know, you, you point to, uh, at a picture of yourself from, you know, when you were in second grade. Right. And you say, that's me. Um, and the Hindu says, yeah, that's right. And the Buddhist says, no, <laughs> you're, you're a totally different person now. Now, if I know anything about history, though, I think that uh, conflicts between Buddhists and Hindus, as with any large groups, uh, generally has turned out poorly for the world. Uh, well, Buddhists as pacifists almost always end up on the, the oh. bad side of any conflict. Dang. Uh, they, uh, yeah, they, ha- they haven't done so well in the hand-to-hand combat uh, scheme of things. <laughs> um, uh, it's just on that. I, this is something I've always wondered. Just this is very basic remedial history. The, the Japanese are Buddhists. Um, they are um, in East Asia. Religious identity is a little more complicated than it is here. So right. if you grab a, a an average Japanese person, they will, in some sense, be both Buddhist and Shinto. Right. Um, and how those connect is is often a little puzzling for Westerners. But is it the in other words, the Japanese have gone to war. Have what? I'm sorry. Gone to war. At, at yes, times. that's right. Um, May have read about it uh, and did pretty well at it. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so they weren't pacifist Buddhists. No, no, yeah. Don't let politics get involved in your religion. That's what I'll say. <laughs> Maybe that's the uh, that is a tricky, uh, tricky thing to manage. But, yeah, tricky yeah, it thing. Can get complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of complicated, we live in complicated times. And I thought, you know what? Screw that. I need, I'm, I would like to regress a little bit um, and go to the golden age, with, you know, where they say ignorance is bliss. Now, I don't know if that's true either. Um, how ignorant do you have to be to achieve bliss? Um, well, I, I think it's not, you know, it's not a more ignorance equals more bliss situation. Uh- <laughs> um, uh, it's that there's some fine balance thereof, right? Um, right. Ignorance of your imminent demise might be pleasant. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, ignorance of whether it's a good idea to get vaccinated uh, is likely to uh, not be a good thing. Right. But do they maybe the, the, the anti-vax people, are they more blissful? They really they don't seem to be. But again, that's another topic. Um, yeah. However, what I'm alluding to is our if this week and our if. Oh, and, and, and let me mention, by the way, Gabby, uh, Gabby Panicia, who's usually here from Rockefeller University, amazing virologist. She is on assignment this week. Uh, yes, that's right. And when a virologist is on assignment. That's serious business. That's serious business. Yeah. So uh, we'll find out what that was next week when she'd be back. I, I assume she will survive the mm-hmm. virology assignment. Um, and uh, so it's just the two of us here today. And, and Matt, you're a historian of science. And so I uh, thought, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought um, it'd be cool to sort of avail ourselves of your superpowers in that regard. And... Um, this, this is going to sound tangential, as is usually my way, but uh, trust me, listener, it's going to come back in a second. The UFO discussions, right, which are abundant these days, um, there's, uh, you know, you can get a, instantly get a heated debate going between skeptics and believers, if I mm-hmm. use just those broad stroke terms. Um, and in that regard, uh, by the way, there are people who are working on, who really think it's important that we just have civil discussions, uh, you know, about these things. And we might actually learn a lot from each other. And uh, so we have some wonderful guests coming up uh, in the next few weeks on that topic. So stay tuned for that. Um, but uh, one of the things, is that if you come at it from the skeptic side, as I, I would say I do, although I, I prefer not to be labeled that way, but you can't help it. What can you do? Um, they'll give you something. So... Um, I prefer to say um, evidence. Yeah, I just want evidence. I'm an ev- evidence-ophile. Yeah, that seems fair. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, but believers, so-called, will, will often say, and, and this is a tough one, you can't rebut it, um, they'll say, there are really, you know, you're saying it's not possible that, that these things are beyond, seem to be operating beyond known physics, right? They would mm-hmm. say, you know, physics itself has revealed things that were previously completely unimaginable. Um, and so uh, we'll leave the, the logic of and how, to, how do you tangle with that. Um, if you, if you want to have a civil debate, we'll save that for when our friends are mm-hmm. on. Um, but I thought it'd be really interesting to go back to one, any sometime in the past before we knew some of the things we knew today. And that puts us kind of in the same kind of position, like of, yeah. we, of discovering mm-hmm. something truly unimaginable. And that and is so, one of the handy things about yeah. studying history of science, I should say, is your, or history in general, um, mm-hmm. is that's a chance to put yourself into uh, a headspace that's different than where you are now, and that can be useful. So that's hopefully we'll see today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, also, it's interesting to think about it. what if you, um, how about this? What it, I, I'm just throwing this out there. This may or may not work. Let me just, so mm-hmm. what about, could we do it? What is it? What the, if somebody who knew how something worked went into the past and had to convince 
those people. Yeah, that might be a, a separate if actually, because that okay. that ties into some some other weird stuff. Um, Ooh, but that would okay. Be fun. That would be fun. That would be fun. Okay, mm -hmm. but for now, we're gonna you know we're gonna go baby steps into this. So mm -hmm. we're big babies at any rate. So, you know, Gabby's not here. We're the adult has left the room. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so. Uh, I asked you before the show, I said, what era, if you could go to any era in history, what would you, where would you like to go in time? Oh, in terms of intellectual interest, I should say. Yeah. So this is also uh, late 19th, early 20th century, which is the period I, I generally write my, my history about as well. Um, right. And one of the things I, I like about that period is it's, it's on the edge of the modern understandings. Um, in terms of physics, that's things like relativity and quantum mechanics and all sorts of important things. Um, so the transition from sort of classical to modern views uh, is very interesting to me. Oh, right, right. Because Einstein publishes his four incredible papers. His miracle year is 1905, right? So yeah, right that's right. So figure, you know, 30, 40 years, plus or minus 1905. That's, that's about yeah. My, yeah. my area. And one other fun fact I learned, I remember that uh, from watching a Ken Burns documentary once, I think, um, I learned that the, the, my, a fun way to visualize the transition from the, the 19th century to the 20th century was electricity, isn't electricity debuts like right around New Year's of the turn of the century is that correct uh, well it depends what you mean by electricity <laughs> per uh, se uh, but like urban um, like a cities cities were yeah lit. i mean there's the the great world's fair in 1900 ah, okay. um yeah. which puts on display all sorts of cool electrical stuff yeah that's what i'm thinking yeah 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 so suddenly electricity the 20th century begins with electric yeah light. i mean one way to think about it would be if you're born before 1900 electricity seems exotic and weird um and if you're born yeah. after 1900 then electricity seems ordinary yeah that is right talk about an incredible um, thing and uh fun fact einstein's father ran a business engineering business right electrical engineering mm -hmm. or whatever, yeah they, they electrified yeah electric street lights yeah that's amazing yeah mm -hmm. um so what what was it you you had a really interesting idea for the thing oh, we, yeah, we so what do we wonder about if we're interested topic? in in thinking about what it's like to not understand something important <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and and how to go about living your life in those sorts of circumstances um i think one of the most interesting ones is uh the sun right uh, literally it is the center of our solar system and of life here on earth right no sun no life um so it's absolutely essential um without it life would not exist um uh or at the very least our lives would be uh, unimaginably different um but uh it was a real struggle to figure out how the darn thing works um so that might be and the, uh, uh, the the sort of various strategies to try and understand it uh, over the years are are interesting, um, and it's uh, the as people try to figure it out, I think it's it's a good illustration of both sort of the um, uh, the benefits and drawbacks of thinking in certain ways about mysterious things. Yeah, yeah, um, and I'm going to jump in in a second. I'm going to hit the magic if button. Just before mm -hmm. I do, I'm just curious that in this period, um, did did people 
people did, for instance, they didn't think as the ancient Greeks did that the sun was being carried in a chariot by. Well, no. So we can, we can dive into those, those options. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what the if, (laughs) what if I completely just erased the, uh, well, I, you know, I accidentally erased the, uh, I clicked delete and, and that piece of music <laughs> went away. That's never happened before. Again, Awkward. thank you, Zencaster, for your wonderful um, gu- uh, GUI. But I shouldn't, a, a craftsman doesn't blame his tools. Um, well, actually, so, craftsmen often blame their tools, whether or not it's a good <laughs> idea for them to do so. That's right. right that, that's fair or not. Yeah. Or as they say, sometimes the, the error was between the, Computer and the chair. Keyboard and chair. Yeah. Keyboard and chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still another piece. Fortunately, we have a contingency plan always. And uh, our, you know, our big band, those guys, they just left. Um, but fortunately, we, our, our backup band is still here. And so nice. what the, yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys for hanging out. What the if? <laughs> The sun do shine. It, what if? What if? What the if the sun were not magic? Imagine, <laughs> imagine. Um, to all to all my friends south of the Mason-Dixon line uh, in, in the southern part of the U.S., I apologize for my accent. I, I did grow up in Maryland, so as a border, maybe I have one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Otherwise, um, yeah. What if? Why do the sun shine, Matt? Well, so as you as you alluded to, the you know one explanation is uh, supernatural ones, right? Which we right. Sort of so we'll start with. So so people at this time, what might they? What state would they have been in, in? the late nineteenth century? So yeah. Um, by this time, several important things are are in place already. Um, we have Newtonian physics. Um, what you think of as an understanding of gravity and forces in general, and uh, the idea that things are made out of uh, atoms, and those atoms bang into each other to create mm. all sorts of different effects. Um, there's also the very important understanding that uh, the sun is just one more star. Oh, um, okay. That's been accepted wow. for some time. Wow. So there's this thing um, at the center of our solar system, and there are certain things that are known about it. Um, we know it's heavy. And we know it's at the center of our solar system, right? So That's right, yes. And then our solar system also moves around in our galaxy, too. And it, right. exactly what that looks like at the time is, is unclear. Right. Um, and just super, super basic, if I understand things correctly, it would be like Copernicus kind of brought us the idea that the sun was at the solar system, and he is in the 16th century? Uh, right. That's right, 1500s. And Newton, who you know formulates gravity and and the orbits of things, um, is in the 17th century. That's right, 200 years after. That. Right, and then we come. Now Excuse we me, are in yeah, 100 years after Copernicus. Sorry. Right, um, right, and now right. we are. And now in, we're in. Let's say the 1850s. We can we can pick up the story. Right. Okay. So so Newton has been well accepted for centuries by this point. Um, and so we know that the, the sun is massive, right? It has weight. Um, Uh and Newton even gave us a tool for measuring it because uh, how, how heavy the sun is. Um, because by Uh looking at how fast the planets go around it, it's a straightforward calculation to, to calculate how, uh, how massive the sun is. 
So we know how far away it is. We know how massive it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we know that it's bright and hot. Um, so yeah. the, the, the question at hand is um, how you explain that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and, and in fact, that would be if, if we understand that it's just another star. It's, it's, it's a pretty, it's actually, I never thought about it this way, but like that perspective is enormous. It's like, not just how does the sun work, but what, if you could explain how the sun works, you probably are explaining all the stars in the sky. That's exactly right. Um, and it kind of goes the other way too, that whatever explanation you come up with has to be reasonable for the whole universe. Right. Um, huh. so you can't invoke something totally arbitrary and bizarre. Um, now, why is why here's this is, for instance, the believers are in the background here the whole time. Why can't we do that? Okay, and that's a totally reasonable question. Right. Um, if for no other reason, then human beings often do that. So Aristotle <laughs> does that. So when Aristotle and the, the classical Greek philosophers tackle this question of why is the the sun right? Um, they say it's because it's made of a particular stuff. This, it's this little blob of ether, and ether is inherently bright and shiny. Um, and the stars and the planets are too, and that's why they all shine. Um, and people say, you know, if you're an Aristotelian skeptic, you might say, well, show me a chunk of ether. Um, and Aristotle says, I can't. Ether doesn't exist down here on Earth. It's a different thing. Um, stuff out in the heavens is different. Like that is, that's it. That's the nature of things. Um, and stuff here on earth is different from that. Um, and that works well for a while. Um, and by while, I mean thousands of years. It seems a bit arrogant, but. Well, it could be. I mean, you could also make the case that it's, it's, it's humble, um, because Mm -hmm. we're the, we're the crappy part of the universe. And then the. The stars oh, uh-huh. and the sun are the nice part yeah. of the universe, right? So yeah. it, it's yeah. an embracing of the fact that we're crummy. Um, and then, starting with well, let's say, let's say Newton establishes this more general principle, um, uh, which is to to reject this idea that it's okay to invoke um, special cases of things, but rather to say that whatever explanation you come up with um, should apply to everything everywhere. Is um, Newton the one that brings that idea? No, it's, I mean, it's a long process, um, uh-huh. but okay. Newton's the one who sort of solidifies it. That is, Newton gives us physics that makes, uh, that can be applied to everything mm-hmm. in the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, uh, nowadays we call this the principle of uniformity. Okay? And uniformity comes in a bunch of different flavors. Um, but the one we're talking about here um, is this idea that a, the laws of nature are the same everywhere. So if gravity works a particular way here on the surface of the earth, it should work that way on the sun as well. So the explanation you give for why a cannonball flies the way it does should be the same kind of explanation you use for explaining why Jupiter moves around the way it does. Okay. So that's the, the great Newtonian achievement, just to show mm. that that's the case. Um, and then kind of in partnership with that is a claim about the stuff that the universe is made of. Um, that is, we should assume that all the stuff in the universe, the matter, is all pretty much the same too. So whatever Jupiter is made of, you should assume is pretty much the same as what Twinkies are made of. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is why you shouldn't need that Jupiter. That may be. That, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we don't, but it's, in fact, we, we know what Jupiter's made of. I'm not sure we know what Twinkies are made of. <laughs> it's still a mystery. Um, so this is... Um, 
the, the uniformity principle is really powerful okay? um, because it lets you do things like try to figure out what Jupiter is made of and what life might be like there. Uh, there's a sense in which our, our show here rests on the uniformity principle, right? It, it, lets you oh, wow. ex- it lets you extend what you already know to places you don't. Um, and that's, uh, that's really powerful, but it's also limiting in some sense. Cause without that, it, we wouldn't have this podcast. That's, right. I mean, that's essentially the peak of this. That's right. You, who could get anything better than this? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it limits you in a way too, because you can't just say something like the sun is hot because it's made of shiny, hot material. Mm-hmm. You have to justify that shiny hotness in terms of what's going on here on earth. Because it has right, to be justified right. in terms of things we already know and understand. Right. Um, so that's both kind of a challenge and an opportunity. Um, and that's the, you know, I'm, I'm generally skeptical of a- any high-level descriptions of like scientific method or how science works. Uh, because it varies so much. But I think this is actually one of the, the main markers of modern science as we know it. Um, which this this uniformity principle and exactly how to apply uniformity gets complicated. Um, mm. But if you're if you're not willing to accept this as a general rule, that is, try to explain things in terms of stuff we already know, uh, or to look for universal explanations, then it's very hard to do science uh, in the way we recognize. Right, today. right. I, I was I was thinking that that uh, talking about arrogance it seemed like for Newton to say and and whoever else you know was following this belief up through Newton, um, that, uh, well, what I just figured out applies everywhere in the universe. Well, that's right. And I should say, Newton is a fantastically arrogant person, so that's a perfectly, oh. <laughs> fine, <laughs> perfectly fine critique to, to level on him. Um, and but I even he, he would have said it, it was a hypothesis, right? If, if That's exactly right. And this is a, yeah. I mean, the, the critique has teeth. That's a, that's a genuine complaint um, because this is a philosophical principle um, that mm-hmm. underlies science, and you can't prove it by, by its nature. There is no series of experiments you can do that will prove uniformity. Um, and the reason for this, this has a technical name in philosophy, which is the black swan problem. Okay. Oh. So oh. if I say something like, every swan I have ever seen is white, um, and then I say, all swans are white, um, that's not guaranteed to be true even though mm-hmm. every swan I've ever seen. And the reason for that is if that there's one black swan in Kazakhstan that I've never seen, then I am wrong about that, right? Right, name um, more right. That's right. So <laughs> any, um, any statement you make about the universe is always vulnerable to the black swan problem. So if I say yeah. all Twinkies are delicious, you can say, oh no, there could be a Twinkie in the center of Jupiter that is yeah. not delicious, right? yeah. um, and that is possible, right? So, yeah. and, uh, and, and again, coming back to the believers, this is a big mm-hmm. part of their thing. They're saying, "Well, yeah. they're always yeah. th- they would like an exception to the rule." This is that's exactly right, um, and that's and this is very difficult to to tackle head on. And there's mm-hmm. a sense in which modern science is kind of built on this kind of precipitous point. Um, mm-hmm. because as well, when we talk about the sun, you know, we'll see kind of s- some of the dangers of this too. Um, and, and then we can sort of reflect on the, uh, why it's still useful to hold on to this idea. Yeah. Um, so let's say, so we're, if it's circa 1850 and we're trying to figure out why the sun is bright and hot, 
um, following this rule, we, we say, okay, well, what are the bright and hot things that we know about here on Earth? Okay. Wood. That's exactly right. So that was in Monty Python. Wood. If she's <laughs> made of wood. Made of wood. That's right. So that's <laughs> that's exactly the first move. Say, well, what if yeah. the sun is made of wood, right? And so right. the sun is just a gigantic wooden bonfire. Right. Um, and you say, okay, that's a could be that that, that follows the rules of uniformity. Um, in fact, if you think so, about it, the people people at that time would have been familiar, for instance, with like forest fires, mm-hmm. and and that would have um, been a huge, terrifying. Yeah, that's right. So then what do you do with that with that hypothesis? Well, right. then you check it, right? What what would be also what would be true if the sun was made of wood? What and one of the things that um you know an obvious first question uh, is how long would it burn for? Right? Because wood <laughs> burns for a certain amount of time and then goes right. out. And right. we know how big the sun is, remember? Newton taught us that. So let's get one solar mass worth of wood. Um, and we know how long that wood would burn for, and let's calculate that. Um, and it turns out to be really short. That's like years. Right. Right. Well, anyone we who's ever, ever tried to have a campfire knows that it does not stay as long as you want. Yeah. The second you go to sleep, <laughs> it's out. <laughs> um, so same for the sun, right? We know that right. the sun has been, uh, bright and hot longer than is possible if it's made of wood. Um, so people are like, okay, well, what are some other possibilities? Well, 1850 is, um, you know, well into the industrial era and they actually know better fuels than, than oh, wood at this uh-huh. point. So let's say it's coal, right? Coal uh-huh. powers yeah. the whole industrial revolution. So imagine that. that. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so if the sun was a giant ball of coal, um, it's better. Um, it still lasts, uh, hundreds of years, but right. we know the sun has been burning for longer than that. Like in Centralia, Pennsylvania, where there's a coal fire still burning <laughs> under the town when the mine mm-hmm. caught on fire. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There are these, these. That's right. So just Centralia on a solar scale, right? Yeah, um, and it turns out that that's still not enough. Okay, the the uh, even if the sun was the most potent um, fuel known at the time, um, it's still that still would not be enough. So did then, they, did they got, have a sense of how old this? Like, how well, I mean, they, there's straightforward things, right? They've got historical records going back a few thousand years, so right, right, the sun right, has right. to be at least a few thousand years. We old. know the Egyptians mm-hmm. saw the sun. Right. In fact, they and had a whole gets, religion based around it. So. The story gets a little more complicated um, uh, in terms of age, too. But this is the the central question: is how can we get a sun old enough for human civilization to have existed in the way? Oh, that, okay, right? yeah, 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 interesting. Um, so, um, because this is the industrial era, uh, there's new kinds of sciences going on too. Um, so it's not just the chemists telling us how long something can burn for, but there's a new field of physics called thermodynamics, which comes out of the study of steam engines. Okay. You know, steam engines power the industrial revolution and people want to understand how they work and why, um, generally so they can make better engines. But this general question of, what's the relationship between heat and motion is the core question of thermodynamics. Because what a steam engine does is it takes hot coal and turns it into movement, right? A piston or a lever or something like that. Right. So just real basic for those. You know, yeah. So you burn the coal and on top of it, you put a tank of water mm-hmm. and that water boils and steam comes off. Essentially, yep. somebody was, whenever this was invented, I'm sure someone must have been making tea 
right? And then realized. Well, yeah, of course, it's not an accident that it gets invented in England, right? Um, oh, it's just, yeah. uh, so we steam has an unbelievable power. Well, if you build it right, so for yeah. so like really basic steam-driven things, the Greeks had actually like oh, you wow. can make little toys with essentially steam coming off of a teapot. Um, oh. The the trick that that um, people like James Watt and friends figure out in the late 18th century um, oh. is how to make this really intense um, and do things. Yeah, that can you know lift thousands right. of pounds and such. And but nuclear power plants are basically steam. Are engines, basically right? the same. We are all, yeah, it's all just fancy ways to, to boil water. Um, so, uh, so, so by, like I said, so we're on to like the 1870s or so, and we have this field of thermodynamics, which tells us certain things um, about the behavior of, of heat and motion. So that's, uh, and those have, like I said, those come out of the study of steam engines. But, and you might say, all right, so all that tells us is steam engines, but the mm -hmm. principle of uniformity says, no, if it works on steam engines, it has to work on um, everything else. It should work on stars and suns um, and badgers and people, right? We should, we're all subject to these laws of thermodynamics now. Right. So just, just to stay within the if, if it's, it's mm -hmm. us. So let's say, who, who might we be? that we are familiar with steam engines and and then what are we going to do uh, so it's a, a good question um and the answer is um people who live in the north of england and scotland um the the home of the industrial revolution so oh. the scientists who come up with thermodynamics are the ones who do hang out in this area. So these are people like William Thompson, who, who we know as Lord Kelvin at the Kelvin temperature scale, um, James Clerk Maxwell, James Jewell. These are all people who hang out with steam engines, and that's not an accident, right? That they're the ah. ones who figure this out. And the, the steam engines are there because that's a cold, cold country? That's where the coal was. yep. I see, I see. <laughs> that's right. But in America, um, we didn't have that? Uh, not, till, not till significantly later. That's right. mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so thermodynamics is a, is a British science for a long time, um, and we'll get hate mail from certain people about this, and that's okay. Sure. I'll, yeah. I'll challenge them to a duel. Um, so <laughs> that, that is appropriate to the time. That's right. So one of the the things that um, thermodynamics gives us um, is this notion of the reversibility of things of of energy processes. So what a steam engine does is it turns heat into motion. Um, but it turns out the equations of, at least some of the equations of thermodynamics, says it can go the other way too, that motion can turn into heat. Uh -huh. Okay. Amazing. And you're familiar with some of this already, right? If you rub your hands together long enough, they'll get hot. Right. Okay. Yuri Geller yeah. took this and made a, made a living off of it. <laughs> yes, right. And that would be another, another if. What if early Yuri Geller understood thermodynamics? Um, <laughs> Uh, so, um, so that's one way to make heat, but it turns out any kind of motion, um, creates heat as well. So even things that are seem a little counterintuitive. So for instance, if I drop a rock, that's motion and that motion can be turned into heat. Uh -huh. Okay. So we're not used to thinking in those terms, um, because the amount of heat that's generated is fairly small. Unless well, the you heat is from the air or... No, it's actually the, 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 the energy imparted by gravity is turned into heat. Okay. How um, would you do that with a rock? Um, you would drop it into a puddle of water, and uh -huh. the puddle of water will get slightly warmer. 
Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I, I had mentioned James Joule a moment ago, and physics students will recognize the name Joule as the unit of energy. Um, and Joule creates a, um, an experiment called the, the paddle wheel experiment, which you will do if you're a you know, second year physics student, um, in which does exactly this. It turns a, the, the energy of a dropping weight um, into heating up um, a bucket of water, essentially. And it's, again, it's not an accident that Joule is a brewer. So he's somebody who, who's really attentive to small temperature changes in liquid. Um, so, so it means that he puts a paddle wheel in water and the water heats up. That's right. And then you because hook up the basically paddle wheel. This thing is slapping the water constantly. Yeah, that is exactly yeah. it. So it occurs to some people. They say, well, maybe this is how the sun stays hot. Right? By making because beer. The, by you know, essentially just on a black, on a, yeah, a stellar scale. Um, because the sun, we know the sun has gravity. So if the sun is collapsing, then it could be yielding exactly the same sort of energy, right? Gravitational collapse is a kind of motion, motion we can turn into heat. So then you calculate um, how much energy would be liberated um, by the sun collapsing slowly under its own gravity. And it turns out it's a lot uh, just because the sun is so huge and its gravity is so intense. So do so, they mean like what, when they talk about that, are they thinking everything, whatever the sun is made of is just rubbing against itself? Is, as is it, collapsing in on itself because of its own gravity. Right. So the friction between the, the material. Well, is, it's not so much the friction uh, as it is the, the jewel paddle wheel. Um, gravit- uh, objects in a gravitational field have a certain amount of energy. And when mm-hmm. they fall, mm-hmm. they yield that energy. Oh, I see. Um, They're falling, can, so they have to give that out. into different forms, right? So if you imagine like a uh, waterfall, right? The the water at the top of the waterfall has a certain amount of energy, and uh-huh. then at the bottom it doesn't. Um, and you say, well, where did that energy go? It went into the motion of the water, um, and then uh-huh. you can you can harvest that energy to do useful things like turn a paddle wheel. Yeah. Right, right. Now, before um, I just want to pause here for one second yeah. because let's remind people. Because I want to get see if we can get this even more a little bit a sense of not it's it's so hard to do right but let's really imagine we are there we have no knowledge of what the solution is going to be mm-hmm. um, and uh, without giving away what it is the answer is I think it's safe to say they have no like the the answer what the answer is going to be. I'll, if you just told them the answer, for instance, at the time, mm-hmm. what that, that would have blown their mind, right? Or what what would they? Well, it would, have, it, it, it would have been literally inconceivable, actually. If you if you took oh. a modern astrophysics textbook and uh-huh. gave it to William Thompson, the uh-huh. guy who comes up with the gravitational collapse theory, he would have right. no idea what was going on. It would not make any sense to him, um, uh, because to him, it would violate. The principle of uniformity. It invokes the modern explanation. Invokes things that he did not ah, accept okay. as part of reality. So he's up against this, right? He's right. So the gravitational collapse theory is pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. It means the Earth, or the the Sun, and therefore the Earth can be um, hundreds of millions of years old, which is real, which is pretty old, right? Lo- much longer than human civilization. Um, and this is also the era when geology is kind of coming into its own too. And geology is concluding that, you know, structures on the surface of the earth, um, are also millions of years old. 
So the millions. The <laughs> so the age. Of, well, no. So this is not billions at the time. This right. is hundreds of millions, which That's is what I say, uh, yeah, which millions, is just right? millions. Yeah. Um, so the Earth needs to be old enough to support. Um, uh, the sun needs to be old enough such that the earth can be old enough to have these geological structures as well. Right. Um, so this is the, the accepted explanation for a long time. Um, it relies just on Newtonian physics, which everyone is quite sure is true. It wow. doesn't have to invoke any special quality of the sun. Um, right. It's closely tied to things we understand really well, like steam engines and falling rocks. Um, and it, uh, and it doesn't have any historical problems. It's not like the giant ball of coal theory, right. which and so the calculations well. hold up. So this is, this is a good question. Um, yeah. it becomes, uh, there, there are challenges to this, um, largely not from physicists, but rather from geologists who, who say, I can see formations that are, that look billions of years old. And then interestingly from biologists, because this is also the era of Darwin. Right. So Darwin and Thompson and Maxwell, all these people are all contemporaries. And Darwin needs a really old Earth in order for evolution to work because evolution is really, really slow. So Darwin <laughs> needs an Earth that is older than Thompson's son. Okay. So <laughs> by the end, I older, say, older by a huge amount. That's right. By an order of magnitude, we say. Right. Yeah. Um, so Thompson actually put, and many other people put this forward as evidence that Darwin must be wrong. <laughs> right. Right. They say there simply isn't enough time. And Darwin right. acknowledges this as a problem. He says, that's right. Your theory does not give me enough time. So, so just, here, here's a moment. Let's see, we can pause mm -hmm. here and say, here's a moment where you had skeptics and believers. Let's say that's exactly right. And, and it's, and that's not an obvious split. It's not like, the, all the all the smart people are on one side and all the dumb people are on the other. It's not conspiracy theorists versus professional scientists. Um, this is two of the greatest minds of the 19th century. And I'm not oh, exaggerating. Wow. This is Charles wow. Darwin versus William Thompson. Um, so what you've now, got here- in going that, into this story, mm -hmm. this is, I did not know, and I don't know that mo I'm sure most of our listeners didn't know, oh, we're going to talk about how the sun works and the discoveries and led to that. Did not know we were coming up on a clash of titans. <laughs> There's always a good clash of titans. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just that usually one of them has been dead for long enough that we forget who they are. Right. Um, Darwin versus Thompson, Madison Square Gardens. Yeah, right. And they, <laughs> they, they both have really impressive beards. Um, <laughs> they're both British. Uh, yeah. well, and this blood. is, so we've got the greatest physicist versus the greatest uh, biologist. They, would they debate this in public? Yeah. They would. Um, and, and, and so people would go see that. Yes, that's right. Um, Darwin, I should say, did not usually do his own debating because he was a really shy, anxious guy. So he would send out his peeps. Um, uh, so you'd <laughs> his get, posse. His posse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, could you, are you able to give us a sense of, suppose we got to go to one of these debates, what would it be like? Yeah, so it would be um, a crowded, pretty dark auditorium because we're, you know, pre-electrical lights so it's it's lit by uh -huh. gas um and there's no sound amplification um and two bearded men um possibly wearing academic robes but probably just thick stifling suits uh would stand at podiums um up on a stage uh and um try to thrash each other in the most polite way possible 
because um, <laughs> they're British. Yeah, because they're British. Um, yeah. And I should say the scientists who were who were known for being good at this became kind of an attraction. So one of one of Darwin's, um, uh, you know, surrogates is a guy named uh, Thomas Henry Huxley. Um, that's the the grandfather of uh, Aldous Huxley, Huxley the writer. Um, and he was known as Darwin's bulldog because he was so effective um, at these <laughs> debates. Uh, he was really extraordinary, a huge amount of fun. Are there any um, quotes you 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 have? Right? Yeah, Are so there's any singers there's, we could use ourselves. Yeah, there's uh, well, you probably can't use them. Um, there's a famous debate between Huxley um, and uh, Samuel Wilberforce uh, in the early days of of Darwinian evolution um, about whether evolution was correct. And Wilbur Huxley was pro-Darwin, and Wilberforce was anti. Um, and Wilberforce um, says to Huxley, uh, they're they're arguing about human descent from primates. Um, and, uh, he's, Wilberforce says, um, uh, I would like to know if, uh, the, the esteemed professor Huxley is descended from an ape on his grandfather or his grandmother's side <laughs> to which as, as the story goes, there are several versions of the story. Um, yeah. Huxley says, uh, I would rather be descended from a miserable ape than, uh, to be a dignified man of science who brings ridicule, uh, into a, an esteemed scientific conversation oh um, so huxley did stuff like that all the time um one of the great science debaters yes that's really awesome um so so we're at this place where you have to kind of measure you know the reputation of one scientist versus another maybe mm -hmm. you trust mm -hmm. one field of science more than the other do you trust the physicists more than the biologists this this is very interesting too because the believer-skeptic debate, a huge amount of it seems to, you know, because there's so little evidence to talk about, really mm -hmm. what it comes down to is appeals to authority, right? In the sense yes, that right. the, the believers mm -hmm. will say, for instance, if, it, if we're talking about a sighting by military pilots, these are the, the you know, the most well-trained people. And so you can't, you, you have to. That's right. You should trust, trust them. them. Right. Um, right. And they would both, and, and both sides of, of the debate at this time, do the same sort of thing. You say, well, why should I trust Thompson's estimate of the age of the earth? Um, and uh, he says, because I spend all my time dealing with heat, right? I, I am the master of heat. You should trust what I say about heat. Um, and then the geologists say, but we're the masters of rocks. We spend all our time looking at rocks and we can tell you all sorts of important things about rocks. Um, and it's not, and this is an important thing to, to think about is, you know, people often talk about science, capital S, as though it's this monolithic thing. And it's not, right? Different disciplines have different methods and kinds of evidence and they disagree with each other all the time. Right. So uh, it's still, it's evidence-based. It's, it's still, like, I feel like another big thing is like, say, well, mm -hmm. Let's forget. I mean, Neil Neil Tyson says, um, actually, even in a documentary I have to work on about UFOs, Neil Tyson, you know, in our interview said, uh, it doesn't, the thing about science is, and again, he's, this is the ideal of science, right? But that it doesn't matter who you are. You can claim whatever you want. You can say, I'm the best, you know, whatever. But ultimately, you have to show hard evidence and other people have to be able to find that evidence. Yeah, but I mean, he's, he's wrong when he says that, right? Um, uh -huh. It's not the case that evidence speaks for itself. 
Um, mm-hmm. If you just look at a steam engine, you do not suddenly conclude what the age of the Earth is. You need to have decades of experience doing calculations and thinking deeply about this, right? So the appeal to authority is real and necessary. Um, uh, Darwin could not just say, um, well, my physics says that the Earth is very old. Um, because he doesn't have any expertise in this matter. And you should not listen to a biologist when they have things to say about physics um, oh, or vice versa. Interesting, yeah. Um, so you have, to, uh, you have to make kind of an assessment. So we've got this, pr- this essentially a crisis of circa 1900, um, mm. is we have an Earth that seems to be older than the sun, um, and that's mm. an obvious problem, right? Um, this gets, uh, uh, there's a new thing thrown into the mix right around the same time, um, which changes the debate completely, which is the discovery of radioactivity. <laughs> because from, another, radio- from an unheard, uh, unheard of That is corner, exactly right? right. Right. Some weirdo is doing experiments with photography in his lab and a oh, chunk yeah. of uranium causes some problems. Um, and then, uh, Marie Curie messes around with some of this stuff. Uh, and discovers that some of these rocks, you know, things like uh, uranium and radium, um, have enormous amounts of energy locked up in them and can release enormous amounts of energy. So, uh, and and it becomes clear, again, from the work of Curie, that these radioactive materials are actually pretty abundant in the Earth's crust. (laughs) So suddenly, there's a new source of energy that nobody had thought about before. So now you can say... So now uniformity lets you do a new thing, which is to say, okay, now that we know that something like radium exists, we can say the sun is made of radium. And then if you do the calculation saying the whole earth, we know how much energy radium gives off. If the whole sun is made of radium, um, then it can last for vast stretches of time, right? billion, as many billions of years as you want. Right. So suddenly, so this is again, an important thing. It's not that Thompson was wrong right? His calculations were correct, but he didn't know that something like radioactivity existed. Right. And if he had, then his calculations would have been different. So there's this moment where you might sort of reflect and you say, oh, those Victorians were so stupid Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to think that the sun was only a hundred million years old. And you say, well, they don't agree with what we think is true today. But that's not the same as saying they're stupid. They right, were making right. really sophisticated hypotheses based on all the information they had. And even this is a really this is a really disturbing thing. thing in a way to think about. It's not <laughs> just like, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we just haven't, I don't know, like uh, we haven't discovered something. So in, in mm-hmm. a way, even finding the uranium. This is far beyond that. It's not only that, I mean, that leap, right? And that took them a while, right, to understand. Yeah, I mean, radioactive, like you said, radioactivity comes out of left field. It's not at all, it comes out of this weird intersection of chemistry and photography. So if nobody had invented photography, no one would know about radioactivity. And that's a totally plausible alternate history there, right? In which radioactivity just doesn't get discovered. also, I wouldn't they, have a job if photography was... That would be a whole different thing, right? Um, so, and even, I should say, even once Curie starts delving deep into radioactivity, no one understands it. No one has any clue how mm. radioactivity works. Right. But it's enough to say, 
I know that there is this material that exists that gives mm. off energy in this way. I don't understand how it gives off the energy, but that's mm. enough for me to change the way I think about the development of energy in the universe right. and sort of the, the history of things like the sun. Um, so the, the, the vague idea that the sun is somehow powered by radioactivity um, is enough, right? Is, is enough to change up um, all of these things that are connected to the question of, of the sun. The I actual- just say, Sorry, which one step. So the equivalent would be if right now we found, so imagine if right now, so we're familiar with radioactivity and all that, good mm -hmm. and bad. But if right now somebody, a woman in France, <laughs> let's say. A Polish you woman know, in France specifically. Oh, a Polish, right. So a Polish mm -hmm. woman in France um, is doing some research and discovers some material doing something we can't even conceive of. Mm -hmm. Just finds it, right? That is, I, I find it almost impossible to imagine. So imagine being on this, you know, just on the other side of Madame Curie before her or before any, you know, any of that uh, radioactivity discovery. And somebody who said, it's, it's basically, as Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology or whatever is like magic. Indistinguishable, yeah. Indistinguishable yeah. from magic, he used to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've got, and I should say we have analogs to that today. So for instance, um, antidepressants um, are super effective at what they do. We really do not understand how they work. Okay. We have, we have hypotheses, but generally speaking, you cannot crack people's heads open and actually watch them at work. Um, <laughs> So, uh, but nonetheless, like I said, they work great. <laughs> so, right. uh, so we run. So the with sun it. could be made of Zoloft. It is. That's right. It's it makes you happy. Right. More that's relaxed. <laughs> that's a real good thing. Well, there's a good one. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but interesting. What you're saying yeah. is actually there are. Yeah, we still are living. There are. Well, in quantum mechanics itself, we have no idea what. Exactly. That's you right. Know. There's something else. So, and in fact, so, you know, if you ask a physicist today, how does radioactivity work? The answer they give is quantum mechanics, um, which is great. Oh. But then you push one layer back and you say, well, why does quantum mechanics work? And they say, I don't know. Um, so huh. essentially it takes 20 years of quantum physics uh, development before people figure out how it works. So the, this, in modern terms, the way the sun stays hot is through a process called fusion. Um, which uh, we don't need to get into it right now, um, but you think of hydrogen atoms merging together via quantum mechanics, and then through the magic of E equals mc squared, energy is liberated by that ah. process. But that's not understood until the 1930s. It's a long time right. um, before we actually understand how the sun works. Right. And again, I, I want to go back to, so we are one of these people, and I think another thing is interesting here is how do we, so we want to figure this out, right? Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing is, uh, maybe you could, I could be wrong about this, but for instance, they have telescopes. So you can look at the sun, but we don't get a lot of information, out of it, right? So it's, it's not telling us what's going on inside, for instance. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so we want to figure this out, right? We want to figure it out. We're sitting in our pub in uh, Scotland and... Um, oh, wow, we're probably drinking a fine Lagavulin or one of these wonderful peaty uh, scotch. Thing. And uh, we want to know how the sun works. Um, anything on Earth, for instance, Darwin 
definitely not easy. So mm-hmm. kudos to him. But he yeah. could travel there. He could measure. You can do the geologists are going yep, places. That's right. do it. The but sun, it's hard to do experiments on the sun. Right. Yep. So um, what? So there's so there's all with pencil and paper. Um, pencil and paper is essential. Um, there's one uh, part of the story that I skipped over for sort of time reasons, um, which is the the development of a tool that, in some sense, lets you do experiments on the sun called the spectroscope. Okay, um, but it's the same kind of rainbow story power of, of uniformity. That that is exactly right. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a tool called a spectroscope, which is basically just a prism hooked up to some other interesting optics. And when you run light through it, um, the prism makes a rainbow, um, depending on what you look at. So if in your laboratory you set certain materials on fire, like your grad student assistant. Um, the colors of light that you see through the spectroscope when you look at the fire um, are different depending on what the thing is made of. Okay, so if you if you burn some sodium, you'll see some bright yellow lines, um, and that's pretty cool. So what this lets you do is, if you take an unknown material and you look at it through the spectroscope, you can figure out what it's made of. <clears throat> uh-huh. um, the question then that immediately you need to burn stuff. Mind, you need to burn stuff, which is a lot of fire. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, is you say, well, could I do this at a distance, right? If I can't actually handle the material, does this technique work? Um, and two of the pioneers of spectroscopy, um, Germans named Kirchhoff and Bunsen, um, ha- have a fantastic opportunity to test this when they're working on the device, which is there's a warehouse on fire uh, across the town from them. <laughs> so they point their spectroscope at it and they say, okay, if we're, if we're right, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but the, the warehouse was full of cobalt, let's say just picking a material oh. at random. <laughs> and then the next morning they go and they talk to the owner of the warehouse and they say, what was stored in the warehouse? And the guy goes cobalt. And they're like, yes. Right. That so, <laughs> so what this means is you can, you can figure out what something is made of without actually touching it. Right. Without interacting with it directly. Is this Bunsen of Bunsen burner? This thing? is the Bunsen of the Bunsen burner. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and then, uh, again, a, a British scientist um, uh, points it at the sun and wow. says, well, let's see what the sun is made of. Um, and at, at, he goes through, and it turns out it's a lot of different stuff. And it all looks this, it looks like the same stuff we have here on Earth. So he sees hydrogen, and he sees oh. iron. Um, and he says, okay, the, the light coming off of the sun looks the same as the light that comes off of hydrogen and iron, iron here on Earth. So it must be made of hydrogen and iron, with one important exception. As it turns out, he sees a color of light coming off the sun that is not known here on Earth. So then it's this problem of, of mystery and unknown. He says, he says, this is a new element. Uh-huh. There, there is an element on the sun that, does, that no one has seen here on Earth before. And I'm going to call it helium after Helios, the sun. Oh, wow. So they so didn't know about a, helium. No? So that's a, that's a bold move, right? And you might yeah. make the case that that violates uniformity. Because you're saying that the sun is made of something special that's not here on Earth. So oh, then, wow. uh, this guy is named Huggins. Um, his challenge is to then say, "Can I find helium on Earth?" So uh, he and his chemist buddies get together. We so went down to Chuck E. Cheese. And it turns out that helium is a, a, a difficult. Is, it doesn't interact chemically very easily. Um, so it's hard to find unless you're looking for it. And then they find it here in the lab here on earth. 
So this is this is uniformity wow. working backwards, or, or maybe it's more of a loop, right? Uh -huh. You develop the spectroscope to study stuff here on Earth. You're convinced it works. You point yep. it at the sun. And because you're convinced it works, when you find something extraordinary on the sun, you then say that extraordinary thing must also exist here on Earth. And that closes the loop of uniformity. What a crazy experience. that was! It's coming from in the house. <laughs> it it's was here all along. Yeah. Wow. What an amazing that must just what a weird experience, right? It's an, yeah. it's it's really an extraordinary thing. Um, yep. And if you want to know more, Huggins is a really interesting character. If you want to know more about him, you should read um, uh, my friend Barbara Becker's book uh, about him. Um, and the world so, can uh, always use more Huggins. Yes, more I totally Huggins. agree. Um, yeah. He's so. This is um, so. I think there's some lessons here that I don't know. Both the believers and the skeptics, in terms of UFOs, can take yeah. to heart. Because um, it is the case that sometimes there are explanations in nature that we cannot conceive of at this point. And that's limited, and, and that's, you know, that, that's a limitation of the principle of uniformity, um, is you essentially have to have a good reason based on what we already know to come to a certain conclusion about something yeah. new and unusual. Um, but there are things that, you know, in the, the Shakespearean sense, are, are beyond our philosophy, um, things we have mm -hmm. not conceived of. Yeah. Um, but, the, but there's the sense that, like, you can't, you can't jump too many rungs on the ladder in one go, okay? Mm -hmm. So, as I said, if you gave Thompson a modern um, astrophysics text, he'd say, well, what's quantum tunneling? Uh -huh. Um, because there, and without quantum tunneling, fusion doesn't make any sense. I said, what's an isotope? Um, without isotopes e equals MC squared doesn't do anything interesting. Yeah. Uh, so even if you have access to, you know, a deeper explanation, it's not always easy to persuade people that that is a good explanation. Right. So. And fair enough. Yeah. Maybe it, you, you would almost say it's your responsibility to. You have Plain to do. Them. Right. You have to do a lot of work, right? So if you think mm. UFOs are transdimensional aliens mm -hmm. visiting us, then you need to explain what transdimensionality is. You need to explain mm -hmm. how it is that the aliens go from place to place. Um, and I should say, you don't have to explain everything, right? Radioactivity was a good explanation, even when we didn't understand it on a deep level. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, you need to show me one trans-dimensional transit. Okay. I gotta, oh, I gotta yeah. know that that's do a it. thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when we, when, you know, we do an analysis of say the Tic Tac UFO and somebody says, um, that's aerodynamically impossible. Yeah. What they're actually doing is saying something like this. We know a lot about how, bodies behave when they are flying through the sky all right we have a lot of experience with that yeah so when we see something moving through the sky we try to use the things we already understand um, to understand this new thing that we're looking at mm -hmm. um, and then we draw conclusions based on what we already know so it's actually a long chain of reasoning that's involved there and you can attack that on a number of different ways you can attack it on the first step, right, wanting to apply things we know. You can just say, no, it's a totally different set of things. 
And you say, and then you, know, you say, okay, maybe that's the case, but then we're not really doing science anymore. We're doing something else. I don't know what. Right, know what, right, what right. Happens. So it's all about the, you need to connect. You need like to the, connect a chain of logic. Things, right? yeah. Um, and it turns out that, that, like I said, that chain is vulnerable at a number of points. So you can object the, the initial uniformity premise. You can say that, well, maybe our understanding of aerodynamics is actually not very good. Mm. Um, or you could say we don't understand this specific thing about aerodynamics. Mm. Um, so you can, <laughs> you can object to the end conclusion in all sorts of different ways. Um, and there's actually a, a special name for this in the philosophy of science called the um, uh, Duhem Quine thesis, named after two philosophers, um, <laughs> Duhem and Quine, uh, who point this out, that it's actually quite challenging uh, when you're testing a hypothesis or an idea. It's actually really hard to tell what you're testing um, because you might. So, if the hypothesis is the Tic Tac is an alien spacecraft, um, there's a whole bunch of things involved in that statement. Um, so, I might be testing the question of whether aliens operate spacecraft in the Earth's atmosphere. I might be testing whether or not there are any aircraft that can do the kind of thing I'm seeing. I might be testing the accuracy of the Navy's forward-looking infrared uh, camera system. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of things that you can see. And you see this in debates over UFOs all the time, is you, you choose what philosophers call the evidentiary level um, oh, that nice. you're having the discussion at. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you can, uh, I should say, a good rhetorical technique is to challenge the evidentiary level that the other person is, is using. So if you're a skeptic and you're talking to a believer and the believer is talking about aliens, you as the skeptic talk about the camera instead. Okay. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> okay. mm -hmm. And then you don't even have to address whether aliens exist. It's just whether this camera is reliable. Right. Well, you're trying to find some other some other thing that this is the like Occam's razor. You can say, well, I can explain this with some very basic. That's right. I can explain this science. in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's right. I don't need to talk about aliens because I'm talking about the camera. And, and I think we can, we can conclude by saying, I think that um, even I, I would say uh, um, Lou Elizondo, who was the head of the uh, Pentagon office that uh, put out these videos and stuff. Uh, and has since retired from the Pentagon. Um, you know, he in some interviews he's he said what a number of people have said, which is like, look, there's all kinds of things that were considered weird and magic in mm -hmm. the past, right? Yep. And the, the 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 retort to that is that, and I think it's important for people to take away from this everything you just helped us understand that these things which are weird that we now take for granted and teach to undergrads and use every day, you know. They were rigorously <laughs> tested, but, investigated, right. debated. And, yeah. yeah, and and in a gradual fashion, right? You mm, have to work mm. your way up to it. Um, again, if it's 1850 and you just show up and you say the sun runs on fusion, that does not help the argument whatsoever, right? People are still uh, thinking about steam engines at the time. Right. So I think the, the equivalent here is that you can't just walk in and say, that's an alien spacecraft. You have to start with this is a this is a this thing I see. This pixel on the screen is a physical object, and that physical object is behaving in this particular way. And I yeah. know that for these reasons. 
And then because it behaves in that way, I can make these other conclusions, right? You have to work your way up. You can't just go right for the most exciting right? <laughs> conclusion. I, I, I was about to ask like, well, so how long did it take to figure out how the sun worked, why the sun was bright? Um, and I was going to say, oh, well, we start, we, we start where you started the story. But in fact, the story begins at the beginning of in, the, the, why does the sun shining is certainly a question that the earliest. Exactly. The first proto hominids a million years ago. Looked yeah. Up at the guy and saw this sort of thing. As soon as they had a brain that could ask things like the question why. Mm -hmm. um, so millions of years, perhaps, to answer that question. Or mm -hmm. we could say it finally, we when, once we finally entered at least the realm of being able to investigate yeah, accepting it. this kind of reasoning in which case you know start from newton that would be fine i think yeah. right oh wow right so hundreds of years mm -hmm. or of years. even yeah. if we start the, the story you just told was about 75 years is that right uh yes that's about right and i should and i want to stress also there's still lots of cool mysteries about yeah. the sun too right so for instance uh, uh, the corona the outer part of the sun is hotter than the inside that's weird Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, we had uh, Hakeem Oliesi on mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. This is what he studies um, is this problem of, of solar heating. Um, so you can know a lot about the sun, but still not have everything um, yeah. in the same way that you might know a lot about weird aircraft, but still not be comfortable saying um, it's an alien spacecraft. Uh, yeah. And people who are unwilling to make those sorts of moderated claims, you should be skeptical of people like that, regardless of what side they're on. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I certainly wouldn't be ready to buy a ticket on a UFO yet. Uh, that would, would be a bad idea. Yes. Easily go with Branson, uh, Virgin Galactic, or Blue Origin, or SpaceX. They are at least testing mm -hmm. scientifically and practically yeah. uh, these mm -hmm. systems. So. Um, and, and all of them make sonic booms, which is actually pretty cool. Like, why would you want to travel without a sonic boom? What fun is that? So, anyway, wow, thank you. This is like so cool. Nice. So cool, man. You're, it's amazing, amazing. Um, and, and by the way, everyone who's listening should feel so privileged to have been able to get that from Matt because you know, people spend an enormous, some, maybe some parents, uh, some parents spend an enormous amount of money. On I uh, I put myself through NYU myself by working in the day. You know, not I was in the film department, but anyway, um, amazing, amazing, and um, just so a couple of books. You know, if you love Matt's storytelling, there you just got to say you got to go get some of these other books. Um, and Matt did not know I was going to say this, uh, but I think I'm I'm so enthusiastic. I'm excited to go back. So one, you mentioned Huxley. So you have a book called. Yes. Uh, Huxley's Church and Maxwell's Demon, um, which actually talks a fair bit about these Age of the Earth controversies and the principle of uniformity. Um, it's an academic book, I warn you, so it's not right. beach reading. Um, but if you want to know more about those folks. Um, right. And then Einstein's War, which is very much a, it can be enjoyed by anybody. Yes, that is beach reading. Um, and yes. you should get that. Um, the, that does not directly address this stuff, but one of the main characters in Einstein's War is Arthur Eddington, who... Yes later in his career does exactly this stuff. He's one of the people who figures out exactly how stars work and sort of lays right. the ground for fusion. Um, and my first book, uh, Practical Mystic, is about Eddington and does talk about this stellar physics stuff. Yeah, that's fantastic. Also an well. academic book, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and but you know i'll just, we'll just leave it at basically you know the einstein's war is a story of you know einstein has this idea which is really out there <laughs> and he won't even believe it himself until he can figure out the details right he yep. needs to make that connection of evidence and uh eddington is part of that other phase the evidence part so very cool very cool um thank you thank you that was wonderful um Gabby uh, Panicia will be back next week, I believe, uh, from her assignment. Uh, Matt, do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, Beyond um, those, uh, your, no, your than all of my plugs are just good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I don't think I have anything coming up, but I should say I do lectures for One Day University fairly regularly, um, mm -hmm. some of which are about this material, and a lot of those are available online, a streaming video too. Um, oh. So you can go to One Day University and um, listen to some of I that too. One spelled out O M E. Um, I think I think the site is one day you. Let me check. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, until then, for those of you, while Matt looks that up, well, if you've enjoyed this, we really could use your help expanding our audience. Um, that helps support the show. Um, and uh, to do that, the huge way you could do this, we've actually it's slowed down a bit, I think, because I've gotten lazy about promoting it or emphasizing the urgency. But we really. I really, if you if you really have enjoyed the show, especially if you've been listening a long time, if you have not left a review on whatever podcast uh, service you're using, that would be helpful. Um, especially now, it, it not that long ago, iTunes, uh, now called Apple Podcasts, was the only place to leave reviews, and so we have like mm. 54 or something like that, and that was great. But now uh, all the individual services are offering reviews on their own sites, which is great. Um, but it means we have just a little bit here and, you know, on all, each a different one. So whatever one you're using, even if it's Apple, um, that'd be great. If you could leave us a review, uh, you can also, usually you can just click some stars and, uh, that works as well. Um, but if you can write a few words, um, that makes it even better. So those are wonderful. And I'd love to read those. So I'm happy yeah. to uh, read your reviews as I see them. And, um, by the way, if you did leave a review and I've never mentioned it or whatever, uh, let me know. Sometimes they go up and I don't know where they are. Um, in particular, interestingly, we've had we've had wonderful reviews um, that I believe I've read in the past uh, in other countries, like the you know all these services, including yeah. Apple. It's like if you you know we have wonderful reviews written on the South African website that don't show up in the American one. I don't know why, but there we go. Maybe someday technology will exist to allow <laughs> reviews to be shared. Nice, but if you yeah. could do that, that'd be really great. And we love hearing from you. I really, I don't, you know, we, there are some of you we know really well, and I'm so glad to hear, and please keep in touch with us. Um, we love hearing from you. You can send in your own ideas. You got a show you want us to investigate? You want to hear Matt tell stories? Um, uh, is it a biological thing you really always found fascinating? You'd like Gabby mm -hmm. to investigate? That would be amazing. Let us know. Um, no idea is too big or too small. You can email us feedback at whattheif.com. Just go to our website, whattheif.com, and uh, there's a thing there. It says share your ideas, and you can literally just type right there on the page. Um, that's fantastic. You can also subscribe there if, you, if you're not sure how to subscribe using your app. Just go there, click the thing, and you're good. Um, yeah, and we're on Twitter, what the if, at what the if. So One Day University is... One Day You, the letter, dot com. Okay. 
All right. Thank you, everyone. Now, uh, Matt, how do we, you know, speaking of being always being on the edge of complete mystery of something we can't fathom, there are ifs on the other there, side of our There knowledge. are ifs yet unknown. There right. are and ifs how does that... not, just, not just unknown, uh, but unknowable. <laughs> and the, the, the terror and existential horror of grappling with things that cannot be known, like the Lovecraftian elder gods, uh, <laughs> makes us scream. Whoa! 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 Whoa!